0: Greetings, in Jesus' name, it's been a blessing to be here, thought of a number of ironies this morning already, <clears throat> the, um, I hadn't thought of it Thanksgiving this week, and that I could have a Thanksgiving message, I had not thought of it till this morning, when that run song was picked, I think you picked it Doris, is that right, uh, but only then will I know, Yes. Oh yeah, this is Thanksgiving week. <laughs> and then um can you give your testimony of your difficult week and yet the song, the ironies are there. And then the other irony is, is my title of my message has the word pilgrim in it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it won't be a Thanksgiving message, but um, But it's been a blessing to have been here. Thank you for that impromptu song, Brother Tim, and for you to have participated with that and for the first message. We are here. We are here with many, many blessings. We are here with many, many difficulties. We are here. With dreams and visions, we're here with broken dreams and visions, and we are here with a lot. But God is here, and we're drawing near to him. Today is my intention to begin a new book study on First Peter. Several years ago, I'd gone through the book of Second Peter. And uh, there are at least two ways to preach, at least two ways. There's more than that. Some people just tell stories, and you know those, those people. But you can preach topically. Take a topic, and uh, the benefit of that is you can um, you can address the needs of the hour because you choose a topic like what's done in the children's lesson. That, uh, that's a topical children's lesson a topic and and taught on it, and the other is to go through scripture and deal with the topics as they arise, and uh, that method can theoretically keep the preacher off of his happy horse or his hoppy hoppy horse, maybe, (laughs) because theoretically it keeps him on different topics and so on. Two weeks ago, I was preparing a topical message, and I was not successful in bringing that one to actually to um, to fruition. Actually, and so I went to another message. But as I actually, if I do the book study of uh, First Peter, that topic will actually come up, and it's very possible that the topic I had intended to to have will come up, but it will come up in the context of a scripture. It'll be in the context of a Bible study. So, why don't we just, if you can, let's just stand for a word of prayer and then we'll go into the scripture text. Let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning that we can draw nigh to you, Lord, that there is a pathway made, Lord. And Lord, we... Even now, only then will we know when we stand before you, only then will we know what we have missed, what we could have experienced, at least in greater degrees here. Had we sought you out, had we yielded to you, Lord, had we recognized what for treasure you are and and have given to us and the grace that is available. So, Lord, I pray this morning, I pray you would be with us as we look in your word, as we look at certain topics, as we look at what you have told us, Lord. And I pray you would inspire our hearts to, um, to uh, both uh, accept the truths integrate in our lives and, and live them out this week. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your care for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe seated. First Peter. We're going to read the first two verses. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you, and peace be multiplied. My title is Peter, Pilgrim, and Pre-Knowledge. Actually, the title actually, uh, the the topic this morning actually has five words that we're actually going to look at here. Five words that we're going to look at in these verses, and we're going to look at. So basically, five points. It's going to look. We're going to look at Peter, look at apostle, we're going to look at the word stranger, and elect, and foreknowledge. Now, I was at a. At some meetings recently, where they they emphasized that application is built on, I think the word they used is doctrine. I think so. And they um, like uh, first the first three chapters of Ephesians, chapter one, two, and three is doctrine. Then four, five, and six is application. And the same way with Galatians. And the same way with the other letters and Romans and many of Paul's letters are that way. And Peter is that way to a certain degree, although he doesn't quite divide it as clearly. What we actually are going to look at this morning is largely, really, really clearly doctrinal teaching. But it's a foundation for life. And we must, we shouldn't minimize the, the framework in which our life emerges out of <clears throat> and I know I know it's the Lord Jesus Christ I know you, know you can you can you can boil it down to a very to a core you can boil it down to a core and you need the core but it's 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 bigger than that So we will look at these five words Peter apostle stranger elect and foreknowledge And the letter begins with Peter have you ever heard of Peter? I'd like to ask the children here, when when, had you ever heard anything about Peter? What did Peter ever do? Did you hear anything ever about Peter that he did or what he was like? Can I get an answer from any of the children? What did Peter do? Denied Jesus three times. Okay. Anything else Peter did? That is one thing he did. You girls back there know what Peter did. Yeah. He what? He fished. He was a fisherman. Yes, that's right. What for special thing did he do? Anybody remember? See some smiles. Yes. He was in the temple? No. He was Jesus' disciple. That was special, wasn't it? Okay. Maybe I better stop asking questions because I can't hear the answers, right? <laughs> so did he walk on water? Peter was a fisherman. That's what the Bible says. And I was thinking, I was never over there at the Sea of Galilee there, but I can imagine the, the bright sunshine, the, the waves lapping on the sandy shore, and him getting a boat, and they're going out, and they're fishing, and they bring the fish in, and, and he, him living there. Uh, Peter was a fisherman. He had a wife. And he probably had children, but we I don't think there's any mention of children that we know of from Peter. But the reason we know there was a fisherman over there 2,000 years ago, the reason we know there is a Peter who was a fisherman, because one day he met Jesus. And when he met Jesus, on the day he met Jesus, he got a new name. And his life was never the same after that. So let's look at that encounter, actually. And you can turn to John chapter 1. We'll read some verses about that first encounter. Here is John chapter 1, starting at verse 35. I'm going to read, Jesus had just been baptized by John the Baptist. And he had been identified by John the Baptist. This is the Messiah. This is the Lamb of God. Jesus hadn't started his ministry yet. He hadn't done any miracles. He just simply coming out of obscurity in a carpenter shop, got baptized by John. And now we'll read this. The the uh, the next day is the day after Jesus was baptized. The next day after, John, John the Baptist, stood and two of his disciples, John's disciples that is, and looked upon Jesus as he walked. He saith, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and saw them following, and said unto them, What seek ye? They say unto him, Rabbi, which is to be interpreted, Master, where dwellest thou? He said unto them, Come and see. They came and saw where he dwelt and abode with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. Now one of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first findeth his own brother Simon, and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted to Christ. And he brought him, Andrew brought Peter, to Jesus. Name was Simon at that point, and when Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. Now that's Peter's first encounter with Jesus. Jesus looks at him and he addresses him directly, and he says, Your name is Simon, the son of Jonah or Jonah, depending which translation you have, that actually varies. But you will be called Cephas, which means Peter. And that's where Peter got his name at that moment. Your name is Simon, but now you will be called Peter. Does an encounter with Jesus justify enough to justify a new name? Not everybody gets a new name, right? But I'd like to think about that a little bit. Peter had a pre-encounter with Jesus' name, and then he had a post-encounter with Jesus' name. And often after that, he was called Simon Peter. Sometimes he was called Peter. Sometimes, I don't know, I didn't check if he was called Simon ever or not, but he, uh, this letter, he begins it with Peter. The, the second letter, he begins it with Simon Peter. Now all of us, and we heard a little bit about it this morning, all of us have a pre-Jesus experience, and we have a post-Jesus experience. And with our post-Jesus experience, with the new birth, we actually get, a new identity and we actually have an identity that is clear enough strong enough that it could it could justify a new name but like peter peter was now called simon peter he had a new identity but he also had an old identity yet did he not did peter live up to his new identity right off not 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 really and, and even when we encounter the Lord Jesus, we are not free from the effects of the old identity. Are you? I think I heard tonight, uh, this morning, about a desire to be closer to the Lord. I think that might, some of that might be because of our old identity, actually, it keeps us from getting as close to the Lord. I still have the flesh and its desires, and its motives, and its drives, and its habits. I still have them. I have them every day. But I also have something else. I have a new identity. I have a new reality in my life that I did not have before. It's a new power. and We sang about it in one of the songs this morning. I forget now which one. My identity, I do not identify with my old man. I identify with the new man, the new man which is created in Christ Jesus. And so old things are passed away. New things, all things are become new and there is a victory and a power that wasn't there before. So Peter, Peter, he identifies himself with his new identity and he says, "I am Peter. This is the name the Lord gave me." But, uh, but he still also identifies himself as Simon Peter because, in a sense, in a sense, as long as we live in the world, we're going to be, we're going to have those two identities, and we are to put the one off, and we are to put the other one on, and that is a lifelong, lifelong. And in fact, we'll talk about that later. Actually, not this morning. Uh, we actually won't get to it, but if you look in the last verse, last part of chapter, uh, verse 2, it talks about through sanctification of the Spirit. And that is actually the process that this, is, this new identity actually uh, lives in us. Now, that was Peter's first encounter with Jesus. Several weeks or several months later, we don't know for sure, we have another significant encounter between Jesus and Peter. And that's in Matthew 4, verses 18 to 20. And uh, you don't have to uh, uh, turn there. You don't want to. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishers. And another... another, um, One of the other gospels says they were, I think they were with their father at the time, unless it was the other two, I forget. But anyhow, they were fishers. And he saith unto them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they straightway left their nets and followed him. I used to try to understand how, I I was trying to put myself in Peter and Andrew's shoes and say, "I'm, I'm, I'm doing my job, and someone comes walking along that I might not even know and say, follow me, and I just leave everything and follow him. But the fact was, this was not their first encounter with the Lord Jesus. They had encountered him, what we had read, and then there were some, in John chapter 2, there were some disciples that went with Jesus to this wedding in Cana. Probably Peter and Andrew were there. And they saw that miracle. And... um, and I'm not sure what all, what all transpired, but they had, they had probably heard some of his teaching. They probably saw some more miracles. I'm not sure what all they saw. But at some point, they went back to their old life. But now it was time for them to follow him in a more permanent way. And Jesus called them. And that's what we're going to talk about next then for Peter. So He followed Jesus. It was time to follow Jesus in a permanent context, and he followed Jesus and became a fisher of men. So that is Peter. Now Peter, he introduces himself as an apostle. Now apostle means a delegate or a messenger or an ambassador. It's someone who is sent by a superior Someone who is sent, and uh, one verse that, that actually uses the word apostle, but doesn't actually uses the Greek word that an apostle comes from, but without using it, is in John thirteen sixteen. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his lord; neither he that sent greater than he that sent him. And that phrase, "he that is sent," is the word apostle. Neither is the apostle greater than he that sent the apostle. But that, so it's the idea that an apostle is someone who is sent by a superior for a mission. For a purpose and with a message. And the question I have then for us is, are there apostles today? And yes, If you look at little a capital, little a apostles, they are apostles today. There's people who get sent. There's, um, in, in the, in the, what the word means, it is, it is true that there's apostles today. There's ambassadors. In fact, in that sense, we are ambassadors and we are delegates. But are there capital A apostles today is the question. Peter is an apostle. Can I say of Brother John or anyone else here that you are an apostle? John, an apostle. Could I say that? Not sure. We ought to study that. Is there an office of apostleship today like there was for Peter? I heard a no. No. Anybody want to contradict that? I won't. There is no office of the apostle today. There is no instruction given how to appoint an apostle. Remember, when you go through the scripture verse by verse, you, you deal with topics when they come up. Here's a topic The original apostles laid the foundation of the church. They proclaimed the word of God. They had the full authority of God behind them. They were teaching new doctrine. They were teaching new things. But this teaching did not originate from them, it was given to them, and they were responsible to deliver this new teaching. Paul actually says just that. And I'll read just a number of different verses that actually says that. And the apostles, they were teaching, but it didn't originate from them. 1 Corinthians 11, 23. For I have received of the Lord, that which also I delivered unto you. So I received of the Lord, and I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night which he was betrayed, took bread. And then he goes along with the... the uh, communion there also in the same letter in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 3 talking about the resurrection for i delivered unto you first of all that which i also received how that christ died for our sins according to the scripture 1 Thessalonians 2:13 paul is also saying for this cause we for this cause also we thank god Without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God which ye heard of us, you heard the word of God from us, ye received it not as the word of man, but as it is in truth the word of God, which effectively worketh also in you that believe. And that was the Apostles' Commission. You're talking about the original Apostles, is to get the word of God out that they were getting to proclaim the death, the burial, the resurrection of the Lord, and to set up a body of teaching that would establish the church until the Lord comes back again. The the apostles had that responsibility and charge to do that. And once that word was out, there is, that word had precedent over any other thing. It's really amazing. That word that they gave, that new doctrine and teaching, which eventually got written down, um, was the word of God, and it had authority, and it could not be changed. Uh, in Galatians chapter 1, verse 8, Paul is talking to the Galatians, and he says some amazing things here. He says, "But though we, and he's talking about himself, we apostles, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than what you have preached, than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed." In other words, Paul preached the gospel as an apostle, and then he said, "If I come with another message, I am accursed." Or you actually hear an angel from heaven another message. This is the message of God. That is what the apostles did. This word was first preached and proclaimed by the apostles. Then in the providence of God and through the leading of the Spirit, men wrote down that gospel. They wrote down those truths. And it's what we have today. It's the Word of God. That's why it's important to read it, to hear it, to obey it, and to translate it for others to read, because it is is God's Word that cannot be and may not be altered. So when we talk about different translations, we are actually... Jealous. We we rightfully need to be jealous about the word of God. <clears throat> Paul writes there in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, and he's talking about the combining of the Jewish and the Gentile church. And the church, they are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And there's where you have the cornerstone. The Lord Jesus Christ, He's the one that brought the salvation. He's, he's the one that everything lines up to. And everything is proper perspective around him. But then the apostles and prophets built the rest of that foundation. So you have this huge cornerstone that lines it up, and then you have the foundation laid. And then the church is built up on that foundation. And we're somewhere... On top of that foundation, but there's no more foundation being laid. There are no more apostles. <clears throat> you see, Peter was an apostle. He spent the three greater part, the greater part of three years with Jesus, and and he witnessed the miracles. He was discipled. He went out on trial mission trips with jesus and was discipled with under him and then he witnessed his entire crucifixion and death and burial and resurrection and ascension he saw it all so he was he was that one of the foundational ones and uh that was some month ago i talked about the The NAR, the New Apostolic Reformation, which actually believed that they are apostles and they are prophets today with new revelations and that you should listen to them. And I'm not going to get into that, but it's not a non-issue. The fact that the question is, are there apostles today? Capital A Apostles. It's not a non-issue. So Peter, he was an apostle of Jesus Christ sent by him and one of the foundational stones in the church. Okay, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, what is the description given to those he is writing to? He's writing to strangers. What... Who are the strangers? Are they strange? Or what does he mean by strangers? Well, if you read in the New King James Version, we have a a little bit broader. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion. The dispersion is the scattered, and pilgrims is the word you use for strangers. And in these two versions, we actually get the full-fledged description that we get in scripture, it called strangers and pilgrims. Strangers and pilgrims is an identification of the people of God in scripture. It's one way God identifies who his people are. And the very familiar one there is in Hebrews eleven thirteen, 13, when they talking about the faithful lives of Noah and, uh, Abraham and Sarah and Enoch, he says, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. The men and women of faith in the Old Testament saw themselves as strangers and pilgrims. And so do the New Testament people of God. If we'll get there later on. And if we go through this book study in uh, 1 Peter 2, 11, Dearly beloved, I, bes- I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. And I'm not completely sure how I'm going to theme out this book. But if you want to look at a theme Of 1 Peter, it could be, um, uh, let me see, (laughs) Peter's Pilgrim's Progress. It's the way I could have, you could actually rewrite that letter. You talk about this letter and all the things that are in it. It's Peter's Pilgrim's Progress because the whole context of the entire letter is given to pilgrims and strangers. They're identified as such, and when you when you view yourself, we'll we'll get into that. <clears throat> Let's get to the definition of that, because uh, pilgrims and strangers sets the stage for the entire letter of, of Peter. A pilgrim is someone who journeys in foreign lands. That's the definition I got right out of the dictionary. But it means he's on a journey. But he's not at home. He's living somewhere. He's living at one spot at the moment, maybe. But he's not at home. He's not where he is right now is not where he's going to stay permanently. It's a temporary residence in a place where they are living, even though where they are living is not where they belong. And this is further demonstrated by the word stranger. For this pilgrim. um, The bulk. The bulk of the people they live among are natives. Which means people who live here. But they are not a native. Which means they are a stranger. They're living amongst a people. That they don't fit in with. That's what a stranger and a pilgrim is. So they are strange. They are not native. They are strangers. They do have different customs. They do dress differently. They do talk differently. They do have different values. But we said that a pilgrim is someone who's on a journey. That means that where they are is not where they're going to stay. They're going somewhere, and they're on their way to where they do belong. So make it personal. Right now, I am on my way to my homeland, but I'm not there at the moment. I am living right now, at a place where I don't belong. This world is not my final world. The house, the home that I live in is not my final home. The job that I have now is not my final job. The government that I am under now is not my final government. There is nothing there we are at now that is permanent, as far as what's here, nothing, nothing here, and I could go further and say the, the, the marriage I have is not my final marriage. I mean, it sounds really bad, but it, it's that is actually true because nothing we have here is going to be permanent. It's just temporal. We are strangers and we are pilgrims. And that is a pilgrim's mindset, that nothing I have here is permanent. It's a mindset of faith. It's a mindset that will give us hope. It will give us perspective when we face things here. And it gives us purpose. It that proper mindset will keep us from getting mired in the stuff here, because when we get mired in the stuff here, we lose perspective, and when we lose perspective, we lose, well, we lose a lot of things. <clears throat> this mindset will keep us from blending into the native culture we are among. These things are going to end soon the real is coming and it's not too far in the future the people peter wrote to would say that peter wrote to these people and they've been at their final place now unless you want to consider the the last resurrection the real final place but they've been there now for almost 2000 years that short time of life that they had when they were pilgrims and they were in their trouble and they were being persecuted that short time is dwarfed hugely by the vast amounts of time when they get to their permanent permanent place. <clears throat> a pilgrim's mindset, like I said already, is actually a heavenly mindset. And it's a mindset that enables us to be always hopeful. We actually ought to be optimist in some sense. Because this, where we're at now, is as close to hell as we'll ever get. It's all going to go the other direction. This is not as good as it gets. This is as bad as it gets. And so, with that perspective, we can learn how to react to life's troubles, which are temporary things and look at things realistically in light of eternity. And and this perspective, this pilgrim's perspective that we're not at home is is and but we're going somewhere is a tremendous aid to our own personal holiness. Because righteous living and conduct among an unrighteous people make perfect sense. When we have the concept that we are strangers and pilgrims in the place we now live, <clears throat> if we uh, if we act, we acted. Could um, could could the um, not categorize? We could. Um, I can't think of the right word, but anyhow, you go through First Peter, you can look at different areas of this pilgrims. You can learn about the pilgrim's destination, you can learn about his rejoicing, you can you can see about the pilgrim's food, his conduct, his walk in love, his treasure, his goal, his willingness to suffer, and all of those things. They're all here. And so if you want to look at first Peter as a pilgrim's perspective, uh, it makes it, it helps give us make sense out of it. So Peter is writing to pilgrims, pilgrims then and pilgrims now. Because he's writing to you and he's writing to me. Okay, number four. First we had uh, Peter, then we had Apostle, then we had strangers and pilgrims. Now we have elect. Now I don't know if uh, the doctrine of election is going to be as inspirational or as as insightful as the word stranger than pilgrim is. It's a little more technical. But it is a Bible term, and I'd like to look at it this morning. You and me, as strangers and pilgrims, we have been elect. I am one of the elect. And if you are a Christian, you're one of the elect. I was challenged many years ago by a Calvinist friend to explain this verse from my non-Calvinist perspective. (laughs) These people have been elected according to the foreknowledge of God. And they, of course, assume that God made that choice from eternity past and the people didn't have a choice in that matter so how would you explain this verse from an un-Calvinist perspective? Maybe that can be the Sunday afternoon discussion. Well, first of all, before we get into any more deep things, I just want to say praise God. I am one of the elect. I mean, we could let that there and just rejoice in that. And, and that's the important part, right? I am one of the elect. I've been chosen by God. Is that good to be chosen by God? (laughs) Well, unless you're chosen for some of his wrath or something, but if you've been chosen unto sanctification of the spirit, then that's good. That's good news. That we're actually only we're only gonna to go to the first part of this verse, but if you look at the entire verse there, the entire Trinity is there. You have the you're elect by God the Father, the sanctification of the Spirit, and you have the sprinkling of the blood and Jesus of blood of Jesus. You have that that's a huge, huge amount of truth there in that one verse. But we're just gonna stick with election here. The doctrine of election means God chooses and God chooses in many ways God as as a being can choose and he made us in his image and we'll talk about later about that choice too but God chooses he chose Abraham he chose Jacob over Esau he chose David to replace Saul as king Jerusalem was God's chosen place for his for uh, for him to to live among his people. And now God has chosen and we heard this in one of the songs this morning, God has chosen to dwell in his people, inside of us and collectively in the church. He has elected me and you so that he can live in you, He has chosen you so that He can live in you. That's the that's the goal of the choice. <clears throat> Paul was specifically chosen by God to be an apostle to the Gentiles, and the Lord said unto him, "Go thy way." Talking about Ananias, for he, Paul, is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name. That word, chosen, is the same word as elect. He's elect. He's elect. I chose him. Elect and chosen is is synonymous. God chooses in various ways. He is God, and he accomplishes his plan. I'm going to talk just a little bit about Calvinism this morning, and a little bit of pushback, because it's not a complete non-issue. The Calvinist asserts that God is the sole will. He's the sole choice in this entire endeavor. <clears throat> and if you look at their TULIP overview, and I don't know how much you studied. It's going to be so brief, it's hardly going to do justice to this doctrine. But TULIP is the Calvinist takes verses like this. And there are verses that if you take them by themselves, it looks like God is to choosing one. Now He's chosen those, he's predestined those for election, those that were appointed to be saved believed. And there's verses like that. There's a number of them. Uh, tulip, which means they would believe man is totally depraved and then unconditional. Uh, the U means uncon... No, I didn't write it down. I but uh, let me think here. I can get it, but basically, the "you" is is not irresistible grace. It's unconditional something. Anybody know? Okay. It basically means that when God chooses you. Um, you, you actually don't have a choice. And limited atonement, the L limited atonement that God died for the elect only. And an irresistible grace is that when God does call you, you will respond and you have actually, you cannot keep from responding. And then the P is hmm? perseverance. perseverance of the saints, the last one. Right, exactly. Be- no, not, 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 not no. No, uh, the U is not unconditional. I unconditional something, but not eternal security. the perseverance of the saint is the eternal security <laughs> but anyhow <clears throat> um, I just want to go through that and 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 look at some verses that want to examine that whether God is the one who chooses only or not. if you read in first in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, we have a very similar as what we do here in Peter. And it's talking about, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. And you have... If you look at that and you take it apart, you actually have the same kind of format in different words. Peter says elect, here he says chosen, it's exactly the same thing. And it's chosen us in Christ, and it's chosen before the foundation of the world, which Peter says, according to the foreknowledge of God, it's just the context is very much the same. So, God has chosen us in Christ before the world was even created. And the question is, if he made that choice and he chose me and him before the world was created and before I existed, do I have a choice in the matter? That's a question. What choice do I have? Or what choice would I have if God didn't choose me? Is Calvinism correct in that way? Now, it's not facing us much anymore, but I talked to Irvin, Irvin Helmuth from North Carolina uh, the Bible school a couple of weeks ago, and it is pretty. It's pretty strong movements in that area. In fact, it, it actually has inroads into their churches there, because Calvinism is a conservative brand of Christianity that also lends itself very well with God and country, and and um, various things like that. So there's there's connection to our people that might be thinking those thoughts. But they have those. They have these doctrines there. In fact, Calvinism, in its history, since its beginning in the 1500s, has had its waves, and it had its times when it diminished, and it had another wave, and and that has been consistent. And we are actually in the in the midst of another wave. I'm not sure if the wave is cresting or not. But during the times, well, I I actually think this is my thoughts that when when Calvinism come to its logical conclusion it leaves people empty and it fades because you just push it and push it and push it and it doesn't deliver what is promised. And so it fades. But then give it some decades or maybe even a century, here come some strong teachers, gifted and able and effective preachers and they bring the thing up and that's actually what's happening now. Uh, John Piper and John MacArthur and uh, Tim Keller and many other, Alistair Begg, are all reformed preachers, which reformed means um, they're Calvinist. And they even have a name for the movement as it is. It's a young, reformed, and young, restless, reformed. (laughs) That's the name that is given to this movement. These young people, the younger people who are are hearing these teachings and it's inspiring them. So there is a surge. And they believe that God has predestined some people to be saved and others are either predestined to eternal damnation or they're just passed over with no chance of salvation. And this choice of God to save some is unconditional and it's not based on any characteristics or any action on the part of the person chosen. Completely unconditional. So is, condition, is election totally unconditional, as the Calvinists say? They say God chooses that God chooses who would be saved is a mysterious counsel of His will, and you can't figure it out, and you shouldn't try to figure it out. It's just true. <laughs> That's what they say. And another way they explain it: well. So God doesn't save everybody. He doesn't want them to be saved. We say, but don't look at it that way. Just the fact that God saves some is, is it's for his glory. He just, the fact that he saves any speaks of the love of God. But there's a little bit of a problem, isn't there, when God creates all these millions and billions of people and he gives them, actually precludes them to some kind of damn, to, to eternal damnation. But there is no doubt, and we feel from Scripture, is that God chooses. And if you assume that it's either one will or another will that chooses, it's either God's will or it's man's will, you can be certain of this, God's will will trump man's will every time. So if there is only one will involved, then it's God's will. I said, if, if there's only one will that can be exercised in this salvation, it's going to be God's. We want to have that settled. God has a will and no one overrides his will. But then the question is, is there a way to marry these two? God makes a choice and you make a choice. The tenor of the Bible clearly indicates that there is more than one will involved in this relationship between God and men, and and it's just a very a very it's, it's through the, a very just almost the entire tenor of Scripture will go through some of it, but in a very formal way, in a very formal way, God chose Israel. You know, He chose Israel. Israel is God's chosen people. Then he took them out and he gave them the law, out of the land of Egypt, gave them the law, gave them the covenant. And then he said, will you accept this covenant? And the people said, we will. God chose them. They chose to enter into the covenant also. And when they did, then they they were sprinkled with blood. Well, let me read that. I have that here. And Moses, and he took the book of the covenant and he read it in the audience of the people in Exodus 24. And this and they said, all that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. That was their agreement. And then Moses took the blood and he sprinkled it on the people. And he said, behold, the blood of the covenant, which the Lord have made with you concerning all these words. So I, I this is a, it was a formal way. God chose Israel but they also chose him as their God. It was both. Do you remember the statement where Jesus said, many are called, but few are chosen? Remember that statement? You know the context of that is, is there was a king that was going to have a marriage for his son, and so they sent his people out, and they invited, invited a lot of people, and there's a bunch of people that said, no, I don't want to come, I I uh, bought some oxen, I married a wife, I bought some land or whatever. He made an excuse that we we don't want to come. And then they got other people to come and they got that thing filled. And then there was somebody there that came in that didn't have the proper garment. And they, they dealt with him. And at the end of that, Jesus said, Many are invited. But few are chosen. Few are elected. You see, election is not an arbitrary decision on the part of one party. <clears throat> God has, through, through the tenor of scripture, God reaches out to a people who he does not want to judge. He wants to save and bless, so he says, "Come, let us reason together," saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. And Ezekiel is, the, is a such a clear verse, Ezekiel thirty-three eleven, talking to Israel at that point. Yet say unto them, "As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked." Turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil way, for why will ye die, O house of Israel? Can you, can you say that verse, that truth in that verse, and say God chooses unconditionally? And you can't get that out of that. The same way when Jesus was was coming into Jerusalem for the last time and he crested that hill and then he saw the city below him and he was moved to tears when he saw that city, that Jerusalem, the city where he as God had chosen to dwell and they had rejected him. He knew they had rejected him and he was coming in. He was going to be crucified and he said, oh, how I would have gathered you like a hen her chicks, but I would have but ye would not. And there you see two wills there, don't you? You see two wills. God's will, and man can reject God's will. Based on that, yeah, man, God has a will. People have a will. People can accept, or they can reject the will of God. And, And so people can reject the will of God, and God is still sovereign. Isn't that amazing? (laughs) He is still God, even when we have a will. So let's not say either God chooses or I choose, because that is an artificial dichotomy. Let's say we chose, God chose us, and we chose him. That is the tenor of Scripture. I chose my wife, but she also chose me. <laughs> and say, well, who, who chose? Yeah, we did. I, I was the initial chooser. I really was. But she had a choice in the matter, and she could have said no. And then history would be, not history, uh, history and the future would be different. <laughs> And so we have two free agents choosing the same thing. I had a free agent, I have a free agent I can choose, she's a free agent, she can choose and we chose the same thing and we got married. And so God chooses us and we choose God and we're saved. It's it's not it's not that difficult to understand it that way. <clears throat> so Okay, well, last one here, elect, uh, according to the foreknowledge of God. <clears throat> now, we are elect, but there's actually a qualification to this elect, and this was actually the hardest one for me to, to kind of <laughs> squeeze out. I know what it means, but I'm not quite sure the connection with the election, that's the thing, but I know what foreknowledge means. When I was born again, at the age of 25, one of my friends, one of my, one of my bosses actually, who was my friend, took me home and we had a talk about it, what happened and all that. One of the things he said, I never forgot. He said that God knew I was going to be saved before I was saved. And at that point, my concept of God hadn't been that big. <laughs> that God knows the future. That God actually knows what's going to happen before it happens. But of course, that's true. I mean, how else could you have hundreds of prophecies in the Bible that were written down and then fulfilled if God didn't know it and also had the power to cause it to happen? By the way, using man's free will to do it, we uh, think we think the we think the, um, the transportation system in New York City is pretty complex. Try to figure out the workings of God back there. It's a little more complex. I mean, we I actually think. Trying to explain exactly how God works is is a finite man trying to understand an infinite God. And we are not ever going to do it. But God knows the future and is is sovereign and is in control. And that is why he can be prophesied. And a lot of those prophecies have been fulfilled and many have not. That will still be coming. But God knows when they will be happening and he's going to make sure it does. And then uh back in the commun- when I had the communion service, uh, we talked about the types and the shadows of the um, the Passover and how it all points to Christ and you go in the Old Testament, you have so many types and shadows uh, the tabernacle is one of them. you have the Abraham giving his son Isaac, and you have Joseph being a type of Christ, and you have just loads and it's because God. God knows and he just, just threads them together because he has foreknowledge. If there's one thing this morning, I, I would like us to just recognize the greatness of God. I mean, I think the Calvinists say, well, we, we believe this and it brings it to glo- for the glory of God that he does it. Well, I think it's, I think it's more glorious to understand that God that knows the future, uh, controls the future, and yet operates with the free will of mankind, and no one is forced in any kind, no one is denied anything in that way, that is more glorious to me than that. There is an opposite version of Calvinism (laughs) that is gaining momentum in our day that has to do with this foreknowledge. So election has to do with Calvinism, this foreknowledge has to do with another Teaching that is actually gaining momentum. In. And is, I said that Calvinism is sort of a conservative branch of Christianity. This one is actually a liberal branch of Christianity. It's called open theism. I don't know if you ever heard of it or not, but it's the idea that um, open theism takes. Basically, the opposite position of Calvinism, that God predetermines everything, is open theism says that God actually doesn't know everything in the future, that he is learning with us. And, and like I said, they, they tend to be on the liberal side. They, uh, they go with the more the cultural liberal element that we find ourselves in, the cultural liberal norms. So God doesn't know the future. He understands different possibilities, but uh, so we have different trails. Well, if if certain things happen, if men do certain things, it's going to go this way. If men decide to do certain things, it's going to go this way, or decide certain things, it's going to go this way, because man has a free will, and because man has a free will, God's not in charge anymore, and so God is waiting to see what man will do to see which way this will go. That's what open theism is, and. It takes care, supposedly, of the problem of sin and free will and some other things that we have hard to hard to understand. But <clears throat> um, open theism is developed because there are things that are hard to understand. But like most liberal thinking, and I want I want us to get this: most liberal thinking, most liberal thinkers, or most liberal thoughts and uh, ideas and concepts or people, they know how to criticize, they know how to critique the issues that aren't correct. The things that we, the way that things are is not the way it ought to be. The status quo is bad. Well, I say bad. It, it, has, this, it has less than desirable elements in it. And these people know very well how to critique and criticize them. The problem is is that their answer is worse than the disease. <laughs> their answer of open theism to, uh, to, uh, to get to the problem of the problem of man 's free will and God not dealing with sin and, and all those bad things that are happening nowadays well the reason is because God is working with us, and that's the worse answer than the, the, the cure is worse than the sickness itself <clears throat> So God didn't know that I would come to him that night. He elected me in eternity past based on the knowledge that he knew what I would do. He called me. And I became one of the elect because I answered that call. He did not predetermine my choice, but he did foreknow it. He did know what I was going to do beforehand. So we have looked at five words this morning. Peter, apostle, strangers, elect, and foreknowledge. And that's all the further we'll get going. Hopefully, we'll pick up speed <laughs> as we go through First Peter. <clears throat> the rest of the verse is, uh, is going to be, I think, intensely practical. I hope so. The sanctification, we're, we're um, elect through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. I look forward to uh, going through that and what all that means in the future sometime. So may God bless you. Remember, we are pilgrims. We are not here to stay. We are not here to belong. We're here for a purpose, but it's going to get better. God bless you.